1: It's a lot easier than you think and you don't need to airbnb your entire house you could just host your extra spare room your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
0: i'm katia adler host of the global story over the last 25 years i've covered conflicts in the middle east political and economic crises in europe drug cartels in mexico
2: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
1: Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I am Matt. And today we're discussing how to think like a breadwinner with Jennifer Barrett.
0: Are excited for our conversation today with Jennifer Barrett. Uh, Jennifer is a longtime financial journalist, and she has written for publications like the New York Times, uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, Money, as well as Newsweek. Uh, she is uh, she's prolific; <laughs> she's seemingly everywhere. Uh, she's del- developed and hosted a popular personal finance video course on Udemy. She's given a TEDx talk uh, on the importance of wealth building, uh, and she's also you know, appeared on many TV shows as well and as impressive as all that is she also has a new book that just came out uh, that's titled Think Like a Breadwinner which is all about empowering women who want to earn more money so this is going to be a helpful episode for everybody but especially for the working woman so Jennifer thank you for joining us on the podcast today
2: Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I really love your podcast.
1: Thanks, Jennifer. And yeah, we're glad to have you here with us. And Matt, we were talking with Jennifer before we began the show and Jennifer mentioned that she loved craft beer. So uh, yeah, we're we're drinking a banana cream pie style uh, beer on the show right now while we we have this combo. But Matt and I, we always drink a craft beer uh, on our episodes because it's something that we love. It's something that we splurge on while we're also being intentional and and trying to save well for the future. So yeah, we want to know from you, what's your craft beer equivalent.
2: Oh, it is craft beer. <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Her equivalent is honestly. one for one,
0: the exact same thing. I
2: was, yes, I was just thinking that we could spend an entire episode just geeking out on beers. Um, I, I am a total beer geek. In fact, I am looking, I'm not drinking just yet today, but um, I just splurged on a four-pack of McKellar, uh, a limited series. Yes, Ooh. very good. Um, brewed with you know your
1: beer. I, yes. know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I love them, but we're also very close to other half brewery, which is... Oh, my God. So dangerous. That's and, right
0: cuz you are in Brooklyn, aren't you? Right. Yes, yes. Oh we are gosh. literally
2: walking distance from Other Half and they have oh, I mean man. some amazing beers. I probably don't need to tell you. In fact, I was just <laughs> thinking they have one called Banana Pandan which you might like as part oh of their pastry gosh. town series. Anyway, it's very easy to drop, you know, 20, 25 on a four pack. Yes. Of those beers, it is way too easy to spend that worth kind of it. money it's worth just it. on four <laughs> beers. And they're strong so you have to sip them so I think it sort of works out, you know, like price per sip or something, you know, I'm not (laughs) drinking all four in an evening. So I think you've got to take value
0: into accounts for sure. It's, (laughs) it's, yeah, you drink it more like wine than you, you know, than like a natty light. And that's what we try to, anytime someone hasn't heard of the show and we're talking about it, we have to kind of explain to them, it's like, we're not like just crushing beers on the show, mm-hmm. <laughs> smashing the cans into our forehead. We're literally splitting the sixteen ounce beer, but <laughs> yeah. it's oh, gonna, that's we're, awesome. we're sharing it. Eight, Eight ounces a perfection, you know. Fancy yes. tulip glasses, but uh, oh, yeah, I we
2: love it. Even the proper glassware. Yes,
0: exactly. <laughs> we're big fans of other half for sure. Man, one that sticks out my, in my mind wasn't wasn't it? Other half that did the wedge salad collaboration. Oh uh, yeah, they, they made Ooh, like all really? these vegetable. Uh, super hoppy. I mean, high so on the on, oh, on yeah. the hop see, flavor. see, I'm not a
2: big I'm not a big hop head, but I can say that. You stick to
0: those pastry stouts.
2: I do love the pastry stouts, but other nice. half in the hands of a lesser brewery that may have been disastrous. I think vegetable combinations, yeah, <laughs> but yes. I think other half can pull it off.
0: <laughs> they they totally can. They to- they they make me want to drink my veggies. You know, <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's the best yeah. way to get them right. Well,
0: well, Jennifer, you're also the uh, we didn't mention this in your bio, but you're also the chief education officer at Acorns, the uh, the app that allows you to stash away money. Uh, we're we're big fans of the app, and you know we've talked about it on the show. And so, how has your time at Acorns, what is that like? I guess first of sure. all, being part of a cutting-edge fintech company, uh, yeah. like, and how how has that changed how you view money uh, yourself?
2: Sure. Um, I mean, it's exciting, right? It's not the first startup I worked for. Um, I worked for thestreet.com in a short-lived joint venture with the New York Times. It was my first experience, and then I worked at Daily Worth, which uh, was a financial media company that targeted women, and I loved it. But um, unfortunately, they went under, which is always a risk with a startup. I don't think that's going to be an issue with Acorns. we're doing very well. Uh, We have over 9 million users, and... um, really uh, have grown just by leaps and bounds since I joined five years ago. Um, But the reason I went, I mean, I know you mentioned um, I was a journalist for a very long time, financial journalist, and I felt like um, I was just writing the same headlines over and over Mm -hmm. again, which was like, you know, Americans don't save enough to cover a $400 or $1,000 emergency. We're on the brink of a retirement crisis, you know, just these really scary headlines. And I was starting to get really frustrated and wondering, you know, we're giving people good information here um, through financial journalism. Why are people still not making the decisions they need to in order to set themselves up? And so uh, we had actually covered Acorns. I was working at CNBC um, as personal finance editor before I joined Acorns. And I was intrigued by the concept of investing spare change, which was the first um, feature that we launched with. And Uh, I thought this is incredible because it removes so many of the mental barriers for a lot of people. Right. If you are just investing spare change, you know, how big a risk is that? Right. What what else are you going to do with it is sitting in your couch gathering dust. Right. So why not invest it? Um, and it was just so easy. And the way that it was connected with spending, you know, you you link your card and every time you spend, we round up your purchases and we invest the change, just made it so simple. And then we were investing, or they were at the time, I wasn't there yet. They were investing it into pre-selected portfolios that had exposure to a wide range, you know, thousands of stocks and bonds. And so it was automatically diversified. So it was really like about as simple as it could be. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's what was intriguing to me. I was really drawn by the mission and I, I wanted to be a part of the solution. And I've been here now for more than five years and now I'm the chief education officer. So I, I get the chance to educate our users and, um, you know, and the general public about a topic that I love almost as much as beer, which is money. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Nice. Well, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. And Acorns is doing a great job at simplifying things. And, and Matt and I believe that simplification is such a huge part of making personal finance relevant to mm-hmm. to everybody, right? Yeah. And uh, and Jennifer, in your book, in your new book, you you start to detail, um, let's go back even further, right? Because sure, yeah. you, you wrote about money, but you, you talk about how in your late 20s, you weren't doing all that great with money. And, <laughs> Thanks for you,
2: calling that out.
1: <laughs> hey, you called yourself out, okay? That's you wrote about it. But like what what was that time like for you? What were you starting to realize about your money situation kind of yeah, as you were, you know, approaching approaching that 30 mark?
2: Yeah. I mean, oh wow, I made a lot of mistakes in my twenties. I, I know a lot of us do. And when I look back now, I can trace a lot of it back to the fact that I was not thinking like a breadwinner. So I was not making money choices from a place of how can I ensure I am able to take care of myself financially for life and maybe others too. Um, I wasn't raised that way. I wasn't thinking about money that way. Um, And culturally, most women are not raised to think of themselves as breadwinners, but it really isn't conscious, right? I think the cultural prescription that we get as women is often this, get a career, get married save some for a rainy day and save some for retirement. And that's what I was doing. And it was really, it was actually in my early thirties that I really had a wake up call. And I realized like, this leaves out a whole chunk of our lives, (laughs) you know, like the decades between saving for a nice handbag or a girl's getaway post pandemic and retirement. And we were um, in a situation at the time, we were in a tiny one bedroom in New York, which is not uncommon, but sharing it with a toddler. And it was unsustainable. And I had a moment where I realized I am in no position here to help us, to help us afford a bigger place, certainly not to buy a place here, Um, you know, not even sure I could afford to have a second child, you know, looking at my own finances, and that was a huge wake-up call for me, because up until that point, I thought I was doing okay financially, but... I realized, I think, in that moment, that there's a material difference between being able to cover the bills and then being able to build wealth to support the life you want, mm-hmm. um, and that was a turning point for me.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and for not just you personally, but you, you know, you've discovered that lots of women yes. were facing similar realizations, right? You know, yes. what what did you find after kind of digging into the data about, uh, you know, just women at large, you know, just across the uh, entire population?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I realized I certainly was not alone, um, and I think if, um, you know, even though women are the main or sole breadwinner now in more than 40% of households with kids under 18, uh, we have not really caught up to this reality yet culturally. So even if you look at the research, um, I mean, research shows that parents actually speak differently to their daughters about money than they do to their sons. So they're more likely to teach their girls how to budget and how to spend smartly. And they're more likely to teach their sons how to build credit and how to invest to build wealth. And those are critical skills for everyone. But women are just a lot less likely to get that training or even to get the message of how important it is to invest to grow their wealth. And so I realized that so much of this came down to the fact that we are really not um, socialize to think of ourselves like breadwinners, and that informs so many of the money choices that we make, uh, especially early on. So it, it helps to explain, in part, why we disproportionately choose the lowest-paying careers, the lowest-paying majors. Even in the highest-paying majors, we pick the lowest-paying paths. Um, you know, I don't need to tell you we save and invest less than men. Um, we have we're earning less, and you know, if you look at the gender wealth gap, it's 32 cents for every single woman compared to a dollar for every man on average, obviously, but that's a huge gap. And it's not entirely explained by the fact that we aren't perceiving ourselves as breadwinners and sort of making money choices from that place. But that really does help explain a lot of it because we sort of know what to do at this point with our money, or at least the basics. So a lot of this is around these internal barriers that we have um, to making those choices. And also, if we don't believe that our income is as important as our partners, we may not treat it that way. Um, and, And we're really... It's time to shift that. I think there's a huge opportunity to shift the way we're thinking about ourselves and our capabilities, um, and the role we can play in in our partnerships.
1: Yeah, you, you you mentioned too in the book that you had some assumptions about your husband making more money than you did, You're challenging these previously held money in relational beliefs. Was that the biggest struggle, and, and how did you do that, and how did you guys do that together?
2: Yeah, I had um, two big wake up calls. (laughs) The first was that the one I talked about a little bit earlier um, when I was sort of asking myself, like, hey, I thought I was this independent woman. How am I in a situation now where some of the things that are most important to me are at stake? And realizing that, you know, I had some pretty deep seated assumptions um, about the role that my partner would play. And I think they were based largely on the fact that, you know, my, my own father had been the sole breadwinner for much of my childhood uh, and then the primary one. And so that was the model I had. My mom stepped out of the workforce. I shouldn't say stepped out. I mean, it's never that simple, but she didn't work for a long time and then mm-hmm. started working again just before they got divorced. So that was the model I had growing up. And I think um, just deep down in my subconscious, I sort of assumed it would be a similar situation when I got married. Now, my husband was earning more than me, but but right before that wake-up call, he had had, you know, he his um, the company he'd worked for had gone under, he'd gotten a new mm-hmm. job that paid a little bit less, so the, the gap between our earnings was smaller, but I was still sort of holding on to this idea that he would be the one to take the lead, and, and I, not even consciously, I had to, re- you know, I realized that's what I was still holding on to. So yeah, we, we did have to have a conversation about that. And I said, I really want to be more active financially in making sure that we can afford the things we both really want, which was having a second kid, staying in New York City, buying a place of our own. And um, so I you know, I said to him, I'm committed to, to doing my part to make sure we can make that happen. And it was for him, but it was also for me because I wanted to just feel more secure about our future and feel like I was contributing to it as well and and have more of a sense of agency, you know, over my own life rather than than kind Mm. of um, leaning on someone else for that. That was the first one. And then the second part of that was I realized that I had not negotiated my salary at the magazine where I was working at the time. I'd been there seven years. And just after I got back from maternity leave, I found out that someone had been hired in a similar role who had just a a couple years more experience than I did at 50% more than oh, I was. Wow. cow. Oh, my God. It was like a punch in the gut. I can't <laughs> even Seriously. tell you. It was, I mean, it really. That's a lot more. Oh, it was incredible. <laughs> and I just thought to myself, yeah. I mean, I remember I, I cried when I, found out because I I realized in that moment, so many things that I'd assumed just were, <laughs> were not the case. Like I had assumed if I worked hard, I would get rewarded for it financially. And I hadn't really negotiated my two big promotions, really had not negotiated a big raise for either of them. Um, but more than that, I realized I'd been there seven years and I started thinking about, oh my God, the money that I've missed out on for seven years, not just in earnings, but in the amount of money I could have been setting aside, investing, putting toward mm. my retirement, all of those things. Um, And so I really, in one quick moment, realized like the ripple effect of not negotiating your salary at every stage. So I think both those things Hmm. kind of happened around the same time. And of course, my husband was very supportive, but I said to him then, I don't think I can stay where I am. I'm going to look for a better paying job. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So that was a part of it too.
0: Nice. Well, I mean, yeah, it sounds like your husband was on board, right? I mean, you, totally. you basically, like, you talked about having shared goals, essentially. Like, mm-hmm. you sat down, you talked through the things that you both want to work towards. Yep. Uh, and, and by the way, we're going to talk more about that negotiating, like, a little bit later because we don't want to, we, we, that's definitely important. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, as we're talking about you personally here, has making more than your husband had, you know, any negative effects on your relationship?
2: I mean, I think it was a little bit of an adjustment for both of us because we had different role models growing up, right? Both of our fathers yeah. had been the the sole or primary breadwinners for most of our childhoods. Um, and I had some ideas about um, what motherhood would look like too. And it, it hadn't involved me being the primary breadwinner at the time. And so um, once we had our second son, I think we really needed to sit down. And so we had to have a really candid conversation about what it would look like if I stayed in the primary breadwinner role, kind of support I needed there. And you know, how we could divide the household responsibilities and childcare in a way that felt fair for both of us. And of course, I wanted him to feel like he could continue to pursue his professional goals too. So it, it did require um, some really good communication around it and getting to a place where we each felt like, you know, we were supporting each other and, and operating like a, a partnership because this was this was a little unusual for both of us. There there was no roadmap there, so we were sort of making hmm. making up our own rules as we went along.
1: Nice. Well, hey Jennifer, one of my favorite chapters is actually a chapter in the book called "The Joy of Breadwinning," and I want to ask <laughs> you uh, uh, some about that and talk about how how good it can be um, for yes. for women in particular. We'll get to some questions, uh, some more questions with you about thinking like a breadwinner right after this break. com slash how to money. That's spelled K A C H A V A and get ten percent off your first order. That's K A C H A V A.com slash how to money. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances.
0: For your extended thirty-day free trial, go to monarchmoney.com/howtomoney for an extended thirty-day free trial. All right, we are back. We're talking with Jennifer Barrett about how to think like a breadwinner. Uh, and Jennifer, even you know, even when women earn more than their husbands, you say that you know there are still these mental hurdles that that need to be overcome. And so, can you? Explain to us, explain to our listeners, like what is the difference between just being a breadwinner versus
2: thinking like one? Sure, I interviewed over a hundred women for this book, and some of them, many of them, were in the breadwinner role. And what I heard from from them, and research supports this too, is that you know there are some women who are breadwinners by choice, and there are some women who are breadwinners by chance. And in the last recession, the Great Recession, men disproportionately lost uh, you know the majority of jobs, and some of those jobs were not replaced. And so literally millions of women suddenly found themselves in the main breadwinning role, and that's really when we started to see this paradigm shift in the breadwinning model. Um, But the distinction was, you know, if you're a woman who suddenly finds yourself in the main earner role because your husband lost his job or he's now making less money than he used to, um, that is very different than coming in with a breadwinner mindset and saying, like, I'm going to make the money choices that will help support me, help support my future, help support, you know, my family or my potential family in the future. And so a lot of women who found themselves in that role really didn't feel prepared for it. Uh, because you're not just earning more, you are now the one who is, is carrying most of the financial responsibilities. I mean, mm. let's be honest, if you're earning more, you are also sort of expected to be the one who's planning for the future, you know, who's investing for the future, who's making a lot of those, um, taking a lot of those actions too. So I, I talk about that distinction a lot in the book um, that, you know, one of the reasons we want to raise more women to think like breadwinners is because of how empowering it is to feel that way, whether or not Mm. you become the main earner in a relationship, but also because so many women are going to end up in that role and you really want to be prepared for it.
1: Yeah. Even if you don't become the main breadwinner in your family as a female, thinking like a breadwinner still has a really big impact, right? Exactly. and I think my favorite chapter, like I said um, before the break, was <laughs> the joy of breadwinning. Yes. And, and so, like, well, yeah, what do you think in that regard that women gain by by thinking like a breadwinner?
2: Sure, and we actually that was the original title of the book too. So oh, nice! <laughs> yeah, I feel so strongly about that because I really wanted to shift the way we think about breadwinning as something that's not a burden, but that is really um, such a benefit to us. And and for me, it. I mean, it really I. It built my confidence up, my sense of security, the um, possibilities I saw for myself, my sense of what my capabilities were around not just wealth building, but for my career, really for every aspect of my life. So there is so much joy in breadwinning. I cannot tell you how amazing it felt when I put down most of the money Uh, for the down payment on the home we still live in today. And just walking around the apartment knowing that I had contributed so much to making it happen, I mean, it was amazing. It's just an incredible feeling to know that you can provide for yourself, that you can provide for the people you love, that you have that capability. And so whether or not I stay in the main earning role is sort of irrelevant. It's really about knowing that we're capable of doing that and, and also building the skills, right? That's important too, to um, to flex those muscles because women in particular, I mean, no one in America is getting great uh, foundation in financial literacy right now it's that's true we are, we are really lacking in that area um it's, Agreed. it's 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 yeah you and you know this you talk about this a lot um but i think women in particular uh are are less likely to both get that education and get the message about how important it is to be saving and investing for hmm. your future not just for retirement
0: hmm. Yeah, and and Jennifer, in the book you mentioned what you call the sneaky self sabotaging beliefs. Oh, my God. (laughs) That are, uh, yeah, that are hard. To even pinpoint, because mm-hmm. you know they've been so conditioned uh, mm-hmm. into who you are, like you know since childhood. And so, how do you suggest that women start to kind of like unravel the subconscious beliefs uh, that are that are holding them back? Is it as simple as not watching like Snow White and <laughs> <laughs> Sleeping Beauty, and instead looking to Moana and Frozen? You know, like you talk know, about kind of like the the classic Disney tropes, but it it truly really is ingrained in us. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on yeah, how to kind of fight back and unravel those subconscious beliefs.
2: Yeah, I think um, we're not really waiting for a prince to save us per se, but um, at least we don't think we are. I think if you look at the way um, overall, you know, the choices that women are making with their money, you could almost argue that... From a financial perspective, it is almost as if we are waiting for someone to rescue us sometimes. But I will say that that conditioning comes from so many places. It's really not just Disney. (laughs) Um, It's just this overall uh, belief that our income is not as critical as men's. um, And that's pervasive in the workplace. It's, you know, it's the assumption upon which many policies are based, you know, right down to paid leave. You know, the fact that we have maternity leave and often not paid for most of it and very little paternity leave. So there, there are a lot of ways that this shows Shows up That may not be obvious. And then, and of course, the messaging that a lot of us get growing up and, and it's not intentional. So, you know, women who did have a breadwinning mindset from the get go, they often had some experience in their childhood where either, you know, they were raised by a single mom or they had a mom who said to them, you know, you need to be able to take care of yourself. They got some kind of counter programming to the, you know, the overarching cultural conditioning that we get. But for most of us, we, we don't. So I think the first step is being aware of that, just Being aware of of all these messages that are really sort of subconsciously saying, we don't need to start investing right away. We don't need to be in a position to take care of ourselves for life. We don't need to expect to be able to take care of a family. Um, Because number one, that's really just not true anymore. But just keeping in mind that our culture just hasn't quite caught up to that reality and being aware of how disempowering some of those messages can be. And then really examining kind of your own money stories and money beliefs. So looking back at your childhood and thinking about the the money messages that came out of that, like for me in my twenties, you know, I made a series of bad mistakes with my money and I really had this idea. I talk about this in the book that I was bad with money mm. and that just got cemented in my brain, right? I am bad with money. And, uh, um, you know, other women I've talked to have said the same thing. Oh, I'm bad with money. Oh, I just don't like to think about money. You know, math is hard, whatever, <laughs> whatever the message is. Um, I really had to work to overwrite that programming to say, like, I am good with money. You know, mm-hmm. just because I made a few mistakes doesn't mean I'm bad with money. In fact, you know, the more I taught myself about investing and all that, and, and then I was covering personal finance really became much more knowledgeable, I realized I'm I'm actually pretty good with money. I just never got a really good (laughs) education around what to do um, with my money and how to build wealth. And so now my message is I am good with money. And that completely transformed my relationship with money. Um, So it's huge. It's first being aware and then thinking about how to transform those beliefs into more empowering ones that will really help support you in your, your goals
1: yeah and then that can be kind of a process, right? A process of learning and then a process of having essentially an internal conversation mm-hmm. um, that that helps you to change the way you perceive even yourself and, and And I think like one of the things you you mentioned in the book, you said that many women aren't raised to think like breadwinners, but are instead encouraged to marry one yes. that That's one of those like self-sabotaging beliefs that you're talking mm-hmm. about, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And it's not, you know, I I have this conversation with women all the time where I don't think it's, we're not going back like 20, 30 years where it's like, a man is going to save me necessarily. But um, there is still a belief that you know we're not going to be fully financially responsible for ourselves. Sort of lets us off the hook a little bit, I think. And so there's less of a sense of urgency. Like if you think to yourself, I am fully responsible for myself financially for life, fully, and probably a family too. If you're operating from that belief, um you are going to make very different choices. You know, you're going to be thinking about oh I need to I need to build my credit so that I can buy a home. I need to start investing early on so I make sure I have enough money mm-hmm. to afford the things that I want and make sure I have enough for retirement and there's just more of a sense of urgency around that if you expect to be in the breadwinning role. And my message to women is like whether or not you expect to be in that role, it is really beneficial to think that way because the more, um, you know, the more you're able to build wealth, the more choices you have in your life, you know, and, and the more security you have in knowing that you can support the life that you want. You, you don't need to ever feel like you, you have to depend on someone else for that.
0: Jeffrey, you know, stats have shown too, you know, with the pandemic, uh, that that's caused around like two and a half million women to exactly. leave the workforce during the pandemic. And so, you know, this is bad news for the economy, you know, and it's, and it's bad news for the earning ability of those women, you know, in the future if they do want to kind of get back into the workforce. So, actually, after the break, we're going to talk through some of the practical steps that women can take to becoming breadwinners uh, in their families. And we'll get to that right after this. <music>
1: com slash how to money. That's spelled K A C H A V A and get ten percent off your first order. That's K A C H A V A dot com slash how to money. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances.
0: So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host, or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options.
1: You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
0: For your extended 30-day free trial, go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney for an extended 30-day free trial. All right, we're back we're
1: talking with jennifer barrett she's written an awesome book about how to think like a breadwinner and uh, jennifer we've covered some of the mindset stuff that is of course important like uh, those ingrained beliefs hold a lot of power over over all of us and and over women in thinking being able to think like a breadwinner and and some of the things that that are ingrained in in us from childhood even Uh, but what are some of the practical financial steps that it takes to reach breadwinner status
2: Sure. I think it starts with your earnings, right? Because your income is the springboard for all your wealth building efforts. And so you want to make sure that you're making as much as you can at any point in time. And that means negotiating, of course. And if you are going to negotiate, make sure you are well aware of what your market value is. That's so important really all the time. Even if you're in a job you love, making sure that you're getting paid on the high end of what your market value is for the skills you bring and the role you're in. And then quantifying your successes in your role. I always say when you come in to negotiate for a a raise or anything like that, that you come in with quantifiable data of how you're bringing value to the company because the numbers don't lie. And that helps take a lot of the emotion out of it, too. So number one, your earnings, being really strategic in the way that you plan your career and in the, the choices you make around that to make sure you're earning enough to support the life that you want, um and then number two, oh my God. I mean, invest. <laughs> I cannot like <laughs> I cannot say that enough. I, I often tell women, use every paycheck as an opportunity to become less dependent on the next paycheck. Ooh. Yeah. So I'll say it again. That's great. That's <laughs> yeah. great. That's great. <laughs> yes. Use every paycheck as an opportunity to become less dependent on the next that is one. That's great. Yeah. And what that really means is that you look at that money coming in and you think, how much of this Can I immediately take and put toward my future and start growing it um, so that I become increasingly less dependent on my paychecks? And that is one way to sort of wean yourself off the paycheck to paycheck lifestyle, which, by the way, that's where I was, you know, when I had my wake up call was living paycheck to paycheck and I still had credit card debt. So so I know I know how difficult this can be, but it really starts with like, okay, I'm going to take a little chunk every month, put it into a regular investment account or a Roth IRA, something, you know, I can touch before retirement um, put some more money into savings, start growing that money because the more your money works for you, the less you have to work for your money. You know, that's the bottom line. And exactly. as you as you build your wealth, uh, I mean, God, the sense of security that comes with that, but also the choices, right? Because as you become less dependent on your paycheck, all sorts of possibilities open up. Like for me, I was able to pull back to reduce my hours as I was working on this book. Um I'm not sure I would have been comfortable doing that if I hadn't already built up quite a bit of money in my investment accounts and in our investment accounts and in our savings. So I was, you know, I was able to do that without taking a hit um in part because I planned for it. So those are the sorts of choices that you have when you start when you start saving and investing for your future. So that's mm. so important. And I think yeah. honestly those are the the two most important things you can do and then just being really mindful with your spending so I, I would ask myself on a regular basis like are, are the money choices I'm making me bringing me closer to this future that I want or further away and that's a good gut check
0: yeah 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 well, so I mean you, yeah, that, that second point was investing right mm-hmm. uh, and in the book too you give the analogy that putting away money it's sort of like building a boat yes. can you kind of explain that for folks because that's such <laughs> a, a great way to talk about it a, as to what it can do for you
2: Sure. I mean, the way I used to think about savings and and the way that it's sort of portrayed and, you know, not to, I I was part of women's media, so I I was probably part of this, but um, in in women's media, we often talk about savings as like saving for that handbag or a girl's getaway or something like that, very short-term thinking. Um, But what I realized was savings is really about, you know, like more savings, more choices. It's really about um, giving yourself the freedom to be able to walk away from a situation that is not, um, that is not good, that does not support you. So for example, if you were living paycheck to paycheck or perceiving yourself as living paycheck to paycheck and being so dependent on that, think about how you're showing up at work, right? You're afraid to speak up. You're afraid to rock the boat. You're afraid to stand up. If your boss does something that makes you uncomfortable, even, do you know what I mean? Like you're just, you're giving up some of your power there. And, and so that's savings is a big part of that and i even talk in the book about you know i there are more examples than i put in the book but so many so many instances of sexual harassment and and microaggressions and overt um you know what would definitely get someone in trouble these days um that i put up with yeah. early in my career and i thought my god you know as i as i set aside more money and savings and investment and i moved up in my career i just wouldn't put up with that anymore yeah um but i realized you know you If you feel like you can't cover the rent on your own, if you feel like you're living paycheck to paycheck, you leave yourself very vulnerable and and you could get stuck in a a situation you don't want to be in simply because you don't think you can afford to get out. And that, uh, God, that is a terrible place to be.
1: Yeah, Matt and I've talked about the concept of peace out money and yes. you know some people call it F U money. We yeah. Don't exactly. Peace I like out. Peace but, out. <laughs> but yeah, it really it's does. A little more peaceful. Yes, can, exactly. It, yeah. exactly. more family friendly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But it can really be that that, you know, boat to allow you to to quit, to get out yes. of a toxic situation. Yep. And it's really, really important, uh, especially, I think, for, for women, right? Yep. Um, and and uh, to Jennifer, you talk about, you tackle the question of having it all in, in chapter 13 of the book. For lots of women, I think it feels like they have to make a choice between having a career and then having a family, having mm-hmm. kids. So um, it, like, can our female listeners, can women have it all? And do they have to choose between those things or is that like a false dichotomy?
2: I think it is a false dichotomy, but I understand why so many women feel that way. And, you know, initially I, I was really torn too when I, um, when I first became the the main breadwinner and we had these two young kids because so much of our identities is wrapped up in being a mom and being a good mom and what that means. And, um, it's really hard. It's really hard to, to do it all. Um, I I agree. But I, I think that that's kind of the wrong question to ask too. You know? mm. The whole point of thinking like a breadwinner is that it's thinking about what you want to have in your life and, and what are the choices you need to make to support that. And I think that's a much more empowering way to look at it than feeling like we have to live up to some have it all ideal because we have the opportunity to define having it all however we want to. And I can speak from experience now. You know, I've been the primary breadwinner for over a decade now, and we have two lovely boys and I feel very, very close to them. Um, I feel fully involved as a mother. So I can tell you from personal experience it is 100% possible. doesn't mean it's not, you know, it doesn't mean it's easy and it doesn't mean it doesn't require, you know, some conversations with your partner to make sure that you um, both feel like you are splitting the household responsibilities and the mm-hmm. breadwinning responsibilities in a fair way. But it is, it is entirely possible. It really is. And I think it's becoming easier and easier the more aware we are of some of these external barriers, too, and, and, um, and we're addressing them. You know, paid leave, all of these things. These are flexibility, remote work. All of these things are part of the national conversation right now. And so I really am hopeful that we're going to see a lot of progress on all those fronts.
0: Nice. And Jennifer, one last question here for you sure. before we let you go. You know, you detail how much of the problem, uh, it can be corrected you know, early on in childhood. I've got three girls, uh, Joel's got two. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you tell the parents of young girls about how to think like the breadwinners that they are capable of becoming?
2: Well, I mean, the first, um, the first opportunity is really to start speaking to them about investing. And when you talk to them about the career that they might want later, looking at what that career pays, <laughs> you know, looking at what those <laughs> jobs, and just being realistic about like, what is the life that you want to have? And what kind of earnings do you want to have? And how are we going to use that to support your life? And if there's a disconnect between what their expectations are and the kind of earnings they can expect from whatever it is they're interested in, to have those conversations early on, like, how are you going to close that gap? Are there different ways to look at your career, different opportunities that will allow you to earn more? Does this mean that you're going to have to pick up a second job when you start just to make sure that you're in a good position? Like, how do you start saving and investing early on to make sure you're set up? Just really having those honest conversations about the skills that you need to be successful as an adult, really, to be able to support yourself Hmm. and the life you want.
1: You know, Jennifer, reading your book actually made me think about talking, starting to talk with my seven-year-old and my five-year-old girls about like I'd opened up 529 plans for them and I realized, oh man, like, just in a few months time, like they've grown a decent bit and it made me want to like, not just look at that on my computer screen alone, (laughs) but then bring them into it and kind of help them see like how investing can make a difference. And like, I wouldn't have thought about that if it weren't for reading your book. So I just want to say thank you. (laughs) Like you're helping me raise girls that can think like Brenwinner. So I appreciate that. That
2: makes me so happy. It really does to hear
1: that. Well, well, thank you. And and so how can our listeners find out more about you and, and your new book?
2: Um, well, you can go to jenniferbarrett.com. It's B-A-R-R-E-T-T. And you can find out all about the book and how to order it and more about me if you want to learn more about me. And of course, acorns.com. That's that's where I work. And you can find out everything you want to know about acorns on that website.
0: Well, Jennifer, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. This has been an awesome conversation. Yeah, we appreciate it.
2: Thank you. This has been great.
0: All right man I loved
1: that chat with Jennifer. Yeah. She brought a lot of interesting knowledge and, and I think just a lot of like help in this conversation because I think I think she's right in a lot of ways like our culture has just not come around to the reality of the fact that almost half of women are the breadwinners in their families. Mm-hmm. And so there's just an important conversation that needs to go alongside of this. And I'm glad Jennifer's voice is in the ring. And this book is out there because I think
0: it is going to be helpful to a whole lot of women. Um, but I want to know from you, what was your big takeaway from this convo? Yeah. So, yeah, so if, I kind of latched on to the idea that she was talking about when she was having these discussions with her husband, right? Uh, she talked about how they were able to, you know, it sounds like they sat down and they, they talked through it. They talked through what their goals were, what their shared Goals were. They, she talked through security, like you know, the the gained sense of security that she would have by also being, be, you know, being able to earn more money. And so that just kind of raised a flag for me that it is important for us to be talking about these things with our partners. You know, it's important for us to be to have our own personal finances figured out. But if you're in a relationship, it is important to make sure that you're talking about these things together as a couple. I think it's even something important to discuss before you're in a long-term committed relationship, before you're married. You know, like once you start dating, if you are a woman and you have the goal of earning a lot of money you know you you, you see yourself being in the office uh, this is something you want to pursue you really love your work or, or there's you know this other aspect there's something else out there that you want to pursue that is really important to talk about and you know we kind of just barely touched on this uh, but I just really like the I don't know the couples therapy aspect of sitting <laughs> down talking through your goals figuring out those goals because once you're on the same page gosh you can accomplish so much more when you're both 100% you know going in the same direction as opposed to you know you both Not necessarily even pulling in opposite directions, but just slightly askew, you know, like if you're both kind of pulling in slightly different directions as opposed to the same direction, you're not going to get nearly as far when it comes to just your happiness, you know, within that relationship. It's a more painful, yeah. Yeah, but also, too, the different goals that you're going to be able to achieve as a couple. So, yeah, that's something that stood out to me. But what about you? Yeah, I thought what what Jennifer talked about when
1: it came to being aware of the subconscious messaging that we've received for our whole lives, right? And I think in those conversations that you have to have with your partner, there's a lot of that that's going to have to be dealt with, and you might have to discuss things that might seem trivial, like well, in my family, my dad was the breadwinner, and I think that affects you know how I've thought about money or how I've thought about my role in this family when it comes to bringing home the bacon, right? And it's not just going to be like one combo to that you know that that. It solves everything but it's going to be a series of combos, but it's also in those conversations, it's going to be unraveling. Some of those things that have become ingrained over a whole lot of years, of just cultural norms and the way that I think in particular females have been left out of the money conversations in a lot of households. Kids in general oftentimes are left out. And that's why, again, like what I said to Jennifer at the end, I am thankful like it is provoking me to start those conversations even younger, even about investing, you know, not just about saving, but but helping them see Mm -hmm. that compounding power of money so that they can get interested in that from a young age and and realize its power um, so that they can maybe think like breadwinners or earlier on and find some joy in it so yeah man I don't know I thought that was a great conversation I'm glad we were able to have Jennifer on
0: yeah and, and that's not to say too that if you and your partner decide that what you want are what some folks would call more traditional roles that that's not okay right it's just that it's something to talk about because everybody has different goals uh, and so you might come down on the side of the fence where it's like okay cool both of our roles are gonna look just like our parents <laughs> you know like if it was a more traditional approach where you know the the male is going to be the you know the the main Breadwinner, but you also might identify that, like you know what, you know, for us, that's actually not going to be the case, uh, or even something that Kate and I have talked about, you know, like off in the future, potentially kind of switching the roles up a little bit and making sure that you know we've talked about how I want to make sure that she has opportunities as well to pursue some of the things that she wants to. That's an ongoing conversation that we've had, and and so I guess I say that to to point out that it's it's not like it's locked in necessarily. Oftentimes, you know, it will be because once you advance in your career, it's it's tougher to to switch things up. But it can be more fluid. Uh, Just make sure you're talking about it. I love it, and and you know what else I love, Matt? I loved this beer (laughs) that we had on the show today. This was (laughs) delicious, and the fact too that Jennifer loves craft beer. Dude, she was dropped. I mean, those are the kind of breweries uh, that we like to drink as well. So we Keller other half, dude. We both totally need to at some point, at least. Yeah, meet up and grab some beers with Jennifer. Most definitely. Yeah, this one we uh, on this episode we had a Das Yummy, (laughs) uh, which is a what's it's a banana cream pie sour that's right yeah what were your thoughts on this beer from Oozelfinch? finch <laughs> that's the name of the brewery it's an amazing name i've never had a beer by them before oozle finch i feel like we've been having more banana beers on the show lately like, like yeah it's, which, which it's, is kind of rando it's
1: interesting but this is i think my favorite banana beer yet it was really really good and it, it was like perfectly tart and so it definitely had that banana cream pie style thing going on with that little tartness that you get when you're eating a banana cream pie i really really like this one I, I think I, I've mentioned before, I'm not like, I, I'll eat a banana here and again. Like, banana runs though, are often the flavor I get in banana beers, and I just don't really dig banana runts, but... There's uh, not a whole lot of banana runts flavor in this no, one. No, there's not. Yeah. This one feels a little more natural banana taste uh, and along with the tartness, man, I, I I really dug it.
0: Yeah, it's almost like like it's got all the banana flavor. Like I wanted to say it almost tastes like it's an unripe banana because of that kind of tartness, yeah. uh, except that there's still good banana flavor because a lot of times when you have an unripe banana, a banana that's too green, there's just no banana flavor there. And so they've got the right amount of banana flavor here, uh, while at the same time uh, a nice little bit of tartness. Um, and dude, also too, I saw in the can that Speaking of women, the head brewer at this brewery is a woman. Nice. And so I feel like that's uh, quite appropriate given our conversation today with Jennifer. We need more women in the craft beer industry. Heck yeah, man. That's for sure. I'm all about
1: it. All right. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode. We'll have uh, links up in our show notes uh, on our website
0: at howtomoney.com. Yeah, there you can find a link to Jennifer's book and her site if you want to learn more and support her there. Uh, and also, too, if you've been listening to the show and you've, you found it helpful, we would love for you to head over to wherever it is that you listen to podcasts and leave us a solid review, letting others know uh, that you appreciate the podcast and we appreciate you. So, Joel, that's going to be it, buddy. Until next time. Best friends out. Best friends out.